This is the Retirement Lifestyle Advocates Radio Program. I'm your host, Dennis Tubergen. Glad you decided to listen in today. Hey, joining me on today's program is returning guest, Mr. Carl Denninger. Carl will join me in segments two and three of today's program. I'll get Carl's take on the real estate market. And Carl has an interesting take on using demographics to to predict future economic growth. So all that's in segments two and three of today's program. It is still February. This is your last opportunity to get the February 2023 special report. The February 2023 special report is titled The Case for Tax-Free and Tangible in Your Portfolio. To get a copy of that report, along with a copy of my best-selling book, Revenue Sourcing, and a copy of the Little Black Book on Social Security Maximization, all you need to do is visit the website requestyourreport.com. The website, again, is requestyourreport.com. And when you visit the website, you'll just need to let me know where to mail your report, as well as the two best-selling books. And I'll include some bonus information in there as well that I think will be helpful as you plan for retirement in today's economy. The February 2023 special report makes the case that we have been living in an artificial economy for the last 10 years. And I'd encourage you to uh, check out the perspective offered in the February 2023 special report. Again, visit requestyourreport.com, and I'll be very glad to send you a copy. You know, speaking of an artificial economy, uh, I've often said that uh, since the financial crisis, with all the currency creation by the Fed, with all the government stimulus, what we're experiencing really is a prosperity illusion. And that prosperity illusion has been fueled by debt accumulation. Now, what do I mean by that? Well, just think for a moment that, or imagine for a moment, I should say, that you have a credit card with a very high limit. It's actually going to be kind of fun to imagine. You can go out and you can buy whatever you want. You can travel wherever you'd like to go. And you just put it on the credit card. And you can spend money in any way that you'd like. You can experience whatever you'd like to experience until you reach the limit on the credit card. At that point, once the credit limit is reached, you'll realize that what you have been living in is a prosperity illusion. It was fueled by debt. Well, that's really what we've been experiencing collectively in the U.S. economy since the time of the financial crisis. And now as the Federal Reserve has been increasing interest rates, we're now starting to see a return to reality. Now, Michael Mahari, who writes for Shift Gold, and many of you longtime listeners recognize Peter Schiff uh, as a past guest here on the program frequently, uh, Michael uh, writes with Peter uh, for Shift Gold, and uh, he had an interesting piece talking about this whole idea of a prosperity illusion, although those are my words, not his. He wrote this. He said, retail sales surged in January, which created the impression that the economy is humming along nicely. After all, there can't be a problem if consumers are out there doing what consumers do. They're consuming. But a lot of people are ignoring a key question. How are people paying for this shopping spree? As it turns out, they're putting a lot of spending on credit cards. Even with a big 1.8% decline in retail sales in December, and that alone should be a red flag, 
December retail sales were down 1.8% year over year. And even with that decline in retail sales, revolving credit, primarily credit card debt, grew by $7.2 billion that month, a 7.3% increase. Retail sales were down, credit card debt was up. Now that really doesn't make sense. So Mahari puts the numbers in perspective. He said the annual increase in 2019 prior to the pandemic was 3.6%. That makes it pretty clear that Americans are still heavily relying on credit cards to make ends meet. Household debt rose by $394 billion in the fourth quarter of 2022. That was the largest quarter-on-quarter increase in household debt in two decades. You have to go back 20 years before you find debt levels increasing at that pace. Debt balances are $2.7 trillion higher than they were at the beginning of the pandemic. So what does that tell you about how people have been coping with higher inflation? Mahari says, and I agree, this is not the sign of a healthy economy. He adds that Americans are spending more on everything thanks to, thanks to rampant price inflation that doesn't appear to be waning, and they're relying on credit cards to do it. The savings rate is down. Of course, this is not a sound economic foundation, and of course, it's not sustainable. Credit cards have a nasty thing called a limit, as I talked about in the illustration that I used at the beginning of this segment. Credit card interest rates now are rising, so that means that people are going to reach the limit on their credit cards much more quickly. Now, Mahari points out that many companies that are marketing to to consumers are now leading with the idea that you can buy now and pay later. Now, I will not mention the name of the company that he uses in his illustration, but this company sells cheese, candies, and treats. They sell consumables. And this company's ad, which Mahari reprinted in his article, leads with the headline, Buy Now, Pay Later, from $10 a month. Now, if you think about that, here you've got a company selling cookies, cakes, treats, fruits, cheese, stuff that you consume, and they're leading with the fact that you can buy this stuff on credit. You can buy now and you can pay later. Now, there are a lot of companies utilizing this marketing strategy. In a December 21 report, The CEO of Cardify said that buy now, pay later is now once again mainstream, which simply tells you that these companies that market to consumers are having difficulty selling what it is that they're selling without a buy now, pay later offer. And as consumers put these purchases on credit cards, many times, depending on the state in which you live, credit card interest rates can be in excess of 20%, despite the fact that the monthly payment might be low. That really validates 
what I have been saying for a very long time, that we are in a prosperity illusion fueled by debt accumulation, that debt accumulation continues. If you've been a longtime listener, you know that I have often quoted that worldwide debt at the time of the great financial crisis was $100 trillion. And now, after central bank currency creation worldwide, after government stimulus worldwide, worldwide debt is now $300 trillion, and that doesn't include derivative exposure. Ultimately, as the revenue sourcing book talks about, we are going to experience inflation followed by deflation, and that indeed seems to be the track that we're on. That's why I would invite you to get the February special report. The February special report talks about this debt-fueled prosperity illusion. The title of the report is The Case for Tax-Free and Tangible in Your Portfolio. All you need to do to request your copy of the report is go to the website, requestyourreport.com. The website, again, is requestyourreport.com. When you go there, all you'll have to do is let me know where you'd like me to mail the report. And when you request the report, I'll also send you a copy of my best-selling book, Revenue Sourcing, which contains a planning strategy for today's economy. I'll also get you a copy of the Little Black Book on Social Security Maximization, and I'm going to be talking more about Social Security in the fourth segment of today's program. I'll be back after these words with Mr. Carl Denninger. Welcome back to RLA Radio. I'm your host, Dennis Tubergen. Joining me once again on today's program is returning guest, Mr. Carl Denninger. Carl is a prolific commentator. You can read his work at market-ticker.org. And Carl, welcome back to the program. Thank you for having me on. So, Carl, we were chatting a bit before we uh, officially started uh, recording, and we were chatting a bit about real estate. And uh, when I looked at some numbers this past week, uh, the year-over-year real estate sales numbers are absolutely dismal. Uh, really, I think the, the Bay Area of California leading the way with the year-over-year uh, price declines of like 35%. Uh, what's your forecast for real estate moving ahead? Well, the the entirety of the bubble price changes that occurred uh, during the COVID crazy is is not only going to come out, uh, there's going to be more than that. And it, and it has to. I mean, if you think about it, the, the, the ridiculously low rates that have been out there is not limited to just what happened during the last three years. Okay, that's, that goes all the way back to the, you know, the, the 2000 housing crash, right? So you have a distortion in that market that goes all the way back there. Um, and so if you look at the prior to the 2000 uh, six bubble, which was you know kind of when it peaked, right before it started to level off, and then of course everything blew up. Uh, so let's let's take that time frame and crank it back to uh, you know reasonably normal rates after the 2000 tech blow up. So you're talking 0304 that kind of time frame. Uh, that or even below that is probably where this ends up. And, and that's assuming that we don't run into the, the leading edge of the problem on the demand side, which is at, at this point essentially 
a foregone conclusion it's going to happen. It's just a question of when it gets recognized by people and when it starts impacting upon the market. Carl, you wrote a piece on market-ticker.org. Uh, you titled it, uh, Demographic Disaster, Do Not Be Fooled, and it really plays into this whole thing. Can you can you dig into that a little bit? Sure. Well, it's essentially, for the, ever since the Great Society programs, really, um, but certainly much more so in the last 20 or 30 years, we have provided profound disincentives to people who are of on the right-hand side of the bell curve. And I don't care how you, you care to define that. Intelligence, uh, drive, desire to succeed, whatever category you care to use. We've created tremendous disincentives for those people to have children. And we've created large incentives for people who are on the left side of that curve to do so. Well, that's a serious problem because somehow you have to pay for all of this. And the people on the right side of those curves are the ones that that end up being successful and therefore paying taxes. And as a result, they're the ones that drive the economy. And it doesn't matter whether you like this or not. It's fact. You can't take somebody from the left side and move them to the right uh, by external program. It's, it's either in you or it's not. It's either something that you choose to do or not. Uh, but what you can do is put your your finger on the scale. And so what we have in this country right now is about 40% uh, by some estimates of current of, of people currently in the childbearing age, uh, either male or female. So you're either you know, you're a man or a woman uh, in that bracket where you realistically can be producing children. So that, that, that time frame cuts off uh, re- in reality somewhere around 35 you may not like that. You may say, oh, no, 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 we can push it. Well, no, you really can't. Female fertility peaks at 24. And and that's a fact. And once you get beyond about 35, the risk of something terrible happening to one or both of you prior to that child becoming an adult starts rising at a very rapid rate. Um, and, and we've added to that in the last few years. But even without it, the, the, the risk of you dropping dead uh, if you're 55 and uh, and have a child that's still at home, is a whole lot higher than it is when you're 32. Okay, and that's just that's just the way it is. And that and if that happens, it's going to do severe damage to your kid. Right? I don't I don't care how you slice it. Losing the parent in that kind of a situation is going to have terrible consequences. So we have about 40 percent of those people that are deciding they're not going to have children, any children. Well, what happens if there's no children, right? I mean, the disaster doesn't show up immediately, but 20 or 30 years later, it certainly does. If there's no children, no, nobody goes to college. There goes the price of college, all these colleges, who, who's going to fill those seats? Um, and then ultimately, uh, who's, who's going to be the next one that takes care of the train tracks and runs the locomotive and flies the planes and, uh, oh, by the way, buys the houses, well, Carl, you know, we were chatting a bit, and uh, Japan is really a, 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 maybe an extreme example of this, uh, but, but the population there has not only aged, uh, but it has shrunk. And certainly when you take a look at the uh, 
debt to GDP GDP ratio uh, in Japan, uh, you know, they've been trying to keep this economy pumped up because of no demographic demand for a very long time. And now it appears that uh, I think it was John Malden that said uh, Japan is now a bug in search of a windshield. Well, yeah, and that's and uh, that's basically the issue is that when you when you put together penalties and policies and, and they end up being penalties. Uh, don't kid yourself. The idea that there is some virtue in the explosion of housing cost and health care cost such that one person cannot go out of a two person couple cannot go out and work and make enough money on an average basis. We're talking median incomes here, not not the person who starts a you know highly successful business or somebody who's you know who's an attorney or a doctor and you know makes you know two hundred fifty thousand dollars a year or something like this. No, 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 no. We're talking about the the median personal income, not household income. Personal income is about forty five to forty five grand. Okay, forty five thousand dollars. If you can't raise a family on that money, then you are saying that unless you are on the exceptional end of the curve, you're not going to have kids, or you're going to do things in a less than optimal fashion. And then on the other side, we you know we pay people on the other side to do this. Well, Japan did essentially the same thing. They had their cost structure get completely and ridiculously out of control, and as a result, the same things happened. And so this this is a a serious serious problem. Um, and and what are we, what are we doing here? Okay, we've been doing this for for decades, and we bought off the last huge problem in our country regarding the nineteenth. This was this was the Nixon Ford, and then of course Carter got the blame for it, and he's now in hospice, and soon he's going to die as a result. Um, you know, it's not bad when you make it to 98. All right. So, uh, you know, not throwing any shade there, but the fact of the matter is, is that our response to that as a society was to throw women out of the house and make them go get a job. All right. And that has not changed. We haven't done anything to, to put that back. Well, you better put it back because if you don't, 40 or 50 years down the road, you're going to end up with what Japan had. And we're already seeing the start of it here and now. So, Carl, when you take a look at just this this whole uh, uh, this this demographic trend, you know the baby boomers had the millennials, and there wasn't quite as many of them, but still a a pretty good chunk of the population. Um, you know, those millennials now are starting to get into their peak spending years, and the economy is still a bit sluggish. We'll talk about that more in the next segment. Uh, but, but do you see real estate ever getting back to the levels that we saw that saw prices in the last year? No, I don't, I don't think there's, well, I mean, other than through something that ends up blowing up everything in the world, uh, you know, in the U.S., I mean, could you could you have a, you know, more high inflation over the next, you know, over the next 10 years or something like that? Well, sure, but, you, you know, what's what's the what's the point of a bubble house if you sell a bubble house and have to buy another one? Okay, the only people that benefit from a housing bubble are the heirs of those who die. And the bankers and everybody else who has a, who gets a percentage. So the, the municipalities love it because property taxes are computed as percentage of value. And and the realtors love it because their commissions are a percentage of the sale price. 
Uh, and, and the, the home insurance writers probably like it too, because of course, you know, that, 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 that price goes into their premiums that they charge for homeowners insurance. But for everybody else, you, you don't win from this. If, if you sell a house that has a, has a market carrying price of a hundred thousand dollars, because the, the single earner average income in the area is about 35 or 40 grand. Uh, and you get five hundred thousand dollars for it. You still have, unless you're dead, you still have somewhere. You have to live somewhere. We, we so, so you're going to sell the five hundred thousand dollars house. You're going to buy a five hundred thousand dollars house. You've gained nothing. Carl, we have uh, about three and a half minutes left in this segment. You alluded to something earlier too, and uh, you mentioned that you know colleges. Uh, and when you look at student loan debt, about one point seven trillion. When you look at the fact that. You know, demographically, uh, 40% of, of, of adults of childbearing age are, are not having children. They're choosing not to. Um, when you combine the demographic trends and you combine that level of student uh, loan debt, what does that mean for the future of higher education? Well, <laughs> higher education, first off, has stopped being education. Okay, remember, we put, we put people in Earth orbit using nothing other than slide rules, and we developed a computer for the Apollo program because it was physically impossible for a human being to hit the reentry corridor by hand. You couldn't do it. And as a result, if we hadn't figured out how to do that, going to the moon and coming back was impossible because you couldn't carry enough fuel to slow down and come back into Earth orbit. So that's the that's the, you know, that's what drove that innovation. We did that using nothing other than slide rules. <laughs> All right. We we today we we've had a rash of nasty incidents of late. We had a rail crash in Ohio. There was another derailment near, near Detroit. Um, there was just another one a couple of days after that. And we see these kinds of things. We have fires happening in, in critical infrastructure and warehouses and manufacturing facilities, things like this. There was a blew up days ago. Um, all of these things that we take for granted require high quality people who know what they're doing and are there for one reason and one reason only, and that's merit in order to keep them operating and safe. Our entire our society depends on this all the way down to clean drinkable water out of your tap. We've lost this, and so-called higher education has turned into a virtue signaling load of nonsense. What is wrong with cinder block dorm rooms and tuition that can be paid by spinning pizzas on the weekends. That is the world that I grew up in. That is the world that was sufficient to put men on the moon. Today, it's impossible. The cost of, of so-called education is 10 times higher, and you have people being admitted to these colleges who have absolutely no business there. They're getting credentials that don't actually demonstrate that they know what they're doing, and the results are across our country all over the place. That's got to stop. Well, my guest today is Mr. Carl Denninger. His website is market-ticker.org. I would encourage you to check it out. And I'll return my, I will continue my conversation with Carl when RLA Radio returns. Stay with us. You are listening to RLA Radio. I'm your host, Dennis Tubergen. Joining me on today's program is returning guest, Mr. Carl Denninger. Uh, I would encourage you to check out Carl's work at market-ticker.org. 
Carl is a very prolific commentator, very bright guy. I always enjoy my conversations with him, and I would encourage you to check it out. Uh, Carl, we, we were talking in the last segment when the, when the clock so rudely interrupted us about higher education, and I was reading an article this past week, and uh, interestingly, uh, it, it zeroed in on the state of Illinois, but I'm sure this is not just an Illinois problem. Um, it, it seems that despite the fact that some of these school districts are spending uh, 12 to as much as $40,000 a year per student, there are 53 schools statewide where not one student is proficient in math at their grade level, and 99 out of 100 are not cannot read at the grade level in which they uh, uh, find themselves. So, I mean, th- this kind of ties into that whole thing we were talking about. It doesn't bode well for, for the future. So what, what's the answer here? How do, how do we fix this? Well, from an educational standpoint, we, we have to stop making excuses. Okay, money is not the answer to any of these problems. Human beings are, I mean, whether you like it or not, we're all part of a bell curve. We sit somewhere on it. For everybody that has 120 IQ, there's somebody that has an 80 IQ, all right? And that's just the way it is. Um, an 80 IQ, by the way, at their highest and best capability, has a math, has an ability to process mathematics approximately sixth grade level. And that's with a fair degree of work. That's not very good, right? When you think about it, I mean, we're not even into algebra yet. Um, but that's all they can do. And, that's, and it doesn't matter whether we like it or not. That's fact. The problem is this. There is no way that you have an entire school district where every single kid in that school is on the left side of the curve. So if, I mean, that's just statistically impossible. So if, in fact, that is happening, and it is, we know it is, because these kids are not proficient. Well, there's only one reason that's occurring, and that's that we have the person at the front of the class who's doing the supposed teaching who is on the left side of the curve, and there's no business being there. And every single time that happens, that person needs to be permanently ejected. There is no remediation you can do in that situation. That person is just incapable of teaching. That, and, and we have to remove all those people from that role, and we have to do it now. And I know that that's going to offend an awful lot of folks, but it doesn't matter. If we're going to actually have a functional society, this cannot be allowed and we've been doing this and making this more and more common over the last 20 and 30 years. And that's why it's happening. It has nothing to do with the kids in those classes. Yeah, I, I get it. They've, you know, they come from lesser economic backgrounds, whatever. There's still going to be a decent percentage of them that are bright. If none of them pass, it's not the kid's fault. Carl, let's shift gears a minute because I, I want to get your take also on inflation. Um, you wrote a piece on market-ticker.org titled, titled PPI, I told you so. Uh, you know, we had a lot of the politicians uh, doing victory laps that, uh, hey, we've got inflation under control. Um, I never thought that it was completely under control, and evidently you never thought so either. So uh, where do we go from here as far as inflation goes, and, and what's the Fed's response going to be? Well, <laughs> the, the PPI, of course, leads – because the, the PPI is the things going into what you end up buying and consuming. The CPI is always looking in the rearview mirror because that is the price of the buy them. Somebody had to make them first. 
<laughs> so when when the whole Build Back Better and Inflation Reduction Act, and then the omnibus, which was the enabler for the the uh, inflation reduction, so-called Inflation Reduction Act, I was one of the biggest lies of in terms of titling of any bill that's ever been put through the federal government. Um, when that happened, I, I said, well, you know, look, we we stopped doing stupid things at a fiscal level uh, simply because Congress hadn't gotten around to it for you know six or seven months. So what you're going to see is, you know, some relaxing of the CPI, but it's temporary because the next pulse of that problem is going to come with this law and it's going to show up in the PPI first. And I, oh, no, no, inflation's over. It's being tamed. Da, 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 da. Well, now the PPI says, no, it's not, that we're still running in the area of about seven, seven and a half percent. And that and that second pulse is this is going to cut the other end. So anybody that thinks that the Fed's done has rocks in their head because until Congress stops doing this, then it's not going to go away. And that's that's the basic problem that you have here is that everybody seems to think you, we can we have a problem with credit card debt. Therefore, we can make it better by more money on the credit card. And you know, what kind of insanity do people do this with, 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 you know, when they espouse that kind of statement? Yeah, we now have credit card debt at nearly a trillion dollars, an all-time high. That gives you a very good indication as to how people are dealing with this inflation. Well, yeah, I mean, it's this is, you know, people say, oh, well, you know, the, the consumer's dealing with it. Well, they're dealing with it by driving up their, their own personal indebtedness and destroying their financial position. Uh, how long do you think that goes on for? Well, the, at the national level, we have these people out there, including the people that are supposedly prominent economists and allegedly educated, who think that this kind of thing can go forever, that we, that we never actually have to pay any of that down and that the interest, there's never going to be real rates of interest charged. And as I've pointed out repeatedly for the last 10 plus years, in a zero or negative real rate interest environment, that is where the, the rate of interest anywhere on the curve is less than the actual economic output expansion in constant terms, not in dollar terms, but in constant terms. So adjusted for, for price changes. If the rate of interest is below that, I can run a literal furnace with money out in the back of in my backyard and show you a balance sheet that looks good. I've not produced a single thing, all sorts of things that are uneconomic that make absolutely no sense for me to do on an economic basis. I can do and make the numbers look okay. And yet, zero of that is actually supportable. So, Carl, it seems that with, with inflation uh, kicking in, um, there, there's a lot of uh, talk worldwide about a central bank-issued digital currency. And, and obviously, if you're um, a politician, that does give you more control. Um, in the time we have left, uh, do you have an opinion on where we might end up as far as a central bank uh, issued digital currency is concerned? Well, there's a lot of people who think that that's a, that's going to be a serious problem, and it's basically going to get rid of our you know our ability to conduct business uh, without everybody else knowing what we're doing. Um, gee, what what percentage of transactions today are actually conducted in cash, and that data isn't already there? I I think the whole central bank digital currency thing is a is a trope from people that are again screaming at the Fed about 
a problem that is actually caused by Congress because they don't want to have to go eject their Congress critter from their office by their hair. And, and that's what should have been happening quite some time ago, obviously hasn't been. And, uh, uh, you know, nobody wants to ever take responsibility of the fact that they voted for these policies that we currently are living with and, and, the, and the results. And so everybody always looks for somebody to blame. And the latest boogeyman is this central bank digital currency thing. I Look, we already have that to an extent. Fedwire is, for all intents and purposes, that. And that is how money is moved at the large corporation and bank level within our economy. And it's been that way since we've had telegraphs. And so the, the, for all intents and purposes, this already exists. All we're doing, all the Fed is doing, all these other central banks are doing, is trying to figure out how to wrap a little bit better security around it other than the physical security that we currently have. If you've ever sent a wire to somebody, um, what prevents someone inside one of those institutions from doing something completely and wildly illegal and untraceable? And the answer is not a whole lot. So you have physical security layers and you have the integrity of the people and putting some sort of, of digital security wrapper around that's probably not all that terrible of an idea. I'm just not sure it's cost effective. Well, the clock says, Carl, we're going to have to leave it there. Uh, my guest today has been Mr. Carl Denninger. His blog uh, is published at market-ticker.org. I would encourage you to check it out. Carl, always a pleasure to catch up with you and uh, certainly would love to have you back down the road. Anytime. We will return after these words. I'm Dennis Tubergen. You are listening to the Retirement Lifestyle Advocates radio program. Glad you're listening in today. And thanks again to Mr. Carl Denninger for joining me on today's program. Past guest here on the RLA radio program, Mr. Mish Shedlock wrote a piece this past week about Social Security. And I thought the piece was extremely well done. And a lot of what we do in helping people plan for retirement is to help them maximize their benefits from Social Security. And when you request the February special report titled the, Ta the Case for Tax-Free and Tangible in Your Portfolio, and incidentally, this is the last week that you can request that report, I will send you not only a copy of the Revenue Sourcing Book, but also a copy of the Little Black Book on Social Security Maximization. If you're just joining me, you can request the report and the books. It's free of charge. We'll drop them in the mail to you. Uh, you just need to go to requestyourreport.com and let me know where to mail all this information. Again, the website, requestyourreport.com. So Mish talks about the fact that Social Security is funded on a pay-as-you-go basis. And he brings up something that many people are not familiar with, and that is the fact that if nothing happens, if the Social Security shortfall is not addressed, by law, benefits will be reduced in 11 years. Mish says, by law, benefits will re be reduced in 11 years if we do nothing. Now, if you take a look at where Social Security revenues are now and where Social Security outlays are now, there are more outlays than there are revenues. Now, this is from the Congressional Budget Office, which uh, is a nonpartisan uh, organization. And this, this pay-go 
has, is a problem that's been well understood for a very long time. In fact, you can go back 21 years, and there was an article published by the Dallas Federal Reserve titled, Pay As You Go, Social Security and the Aging of America. So this problem is not a new problem. It's been around, and politicians have been aware of it for a very long time. But we don't have any movement in addressing these issues because primarily, in my view, the solutions to these problems are not going to be very popular among those that vote. Now, I want to give you just a bit from this Dallas Federal Reserve article from 2002. Keep in mind, this is what the Dallas Federal Reserve Bank said 21 years ago. Quote, because it is a mature pay-as-you-go system, Social Security provides current and future workers with below-market returns. Certainly any high earner listening to today's broadcast who has now begun to collect Social Security benefits understands what a poor investment Social Security actually was. Back to the article, these workers bear the burden of the unfunded liability arising from windfall gains to past retirees. See, if you were early in to Social Security, it was a really good deal. You collected a lot more than you paid in. That's the nature of a Ponzi scheme as well. Now, Alan D. Viard, and again, this article is from 21 years ago, is quoted in this article, and he talks about three demographic developments. One, the birth rate decline. I talked about that on today's program with Carl Denninger. The birth rate is still declining. 40% of those of childbearing age are electing not to have children. That does not bode well for the economy which is dependent on consumer spending, that does not bode well for the future of Social Security. So we've got a low birth rate, that's trend one. Two, we've got all these baby boomers that are now reaching retirement age and drawing benefits, and we've got increasing mortality. People are living longer. So, where are we when you just take a look at the numbers? Well, let's set the blame game going on aside. We'll just take a look at what the numbers are. This is from the Congressional Budget Office. This is from 2022. This is from last year. In the Congressional Budget Office projections, spending on Social Security exceeds revenues to the program in 2022. In other words, they're paying out more than they're taking in. That's a recipe for a problem. And this deficit increases relative to economic output over the next 75 years. If combined, and you project this out, the program's trust fund will be exhausted in 2033. That's just 10 years from now. Now, the CBO talks about the fact that the actuarial deficit of Social Security over the next 75 years is equal to 1.7% of gross domestic product, 1.7% of economic output, or 4.9% of taxable payroll. 
That is, the federal government could maintain the necessary trust fund balances through 2096 if it immediately and permanently raised payroll tax rates by 4.9%. There's a bit of a problem with the CBO's analysis. They forget to mention that there's no money in the Social Security Trust Fund. Now, both parties, Politicians in both parties refer to this trust fund, but as Mish points out in his article, and I have pointed out on past programs, that money has already been spent. The U.S. government is now nearly $32 trillion in debt. You can go to the Debt Clock website and see how quickly government debt is growing. So the idea of this Social Security Trust Fund, that there's this money in a lockbox that's been set aside to pay out benefits, is simply not true. As I've often, as I've often used for an illustration, I could write myself a check for a trillion dollars and declare myself to be the world's first trillionaire, and that would be true until I decided to cash the check. That's also true of the Social Security Trust Fund. There is no pool of Social Security money to pay out. There's not a pool of money that will run out in 2033. This is a pay-as-you-go system. So by law, as Mish points out, payments will be lower by 2033 or sooner if we don't do anything. Now, if you take a look at the number of workers uh, that are actually paying into Social Security and the number of workers that will be collecting Social Security benefits, the number of those retiring wanting to collect benefits is significantly higher and rising a lot faster than those that are paying into the system. In 2023, the Congressional Budget Office estimates that the 65 plus population will increase by 2 million. That's in just one year. So what's going to happen with Social Security? Well, if nothing happens, benefits will by law have to be cut. So how much will benefits actually have to be cut? Well, again, it really kind of depends on uh, whose numbers you look at, but the, the best I can come up with is that benefits would have to be reduced by about 23%, at least initially, to close that gap. Now, this all assumes that we don't have a recession because the Congressional Budget Office uses numbers that assume that we don't have economic contraction, and I think that is a bit of a rosy assumption. Now, as you plan for retirement, all these issues are important to consider. This month's special report titled The Case for Tax-Free and Tangible in Your Portfolio will be sent to you if you visit requestyourreport.com and let me know where to mail that report. I'll also mail you a copy of the Revenue Sourcing Book that talks about maximizing benefits from Social Security, talks about ways to consider positioning your assets moving ahead in today's artificial economy, as we've discussed on the program. Again, go to requestyourreport.com to request that report. Again, it's request your report request your report.com that's all the time i have for this week i'll be back again next week 
Have a great week.